You know, we don't seek God to earn his love. We seek him because he loves us. God doesn't love us because we have earned his love. God loves us when we were still sinners, when we were dead in our sins, and God overwhelmed us with such mercy and grace displayed at the cross, and we love God in response to his love for us. Every religion in the world or some uh, misguided shoot-off of Christianity can be placed in this category, the doctrine of human achievement. You work and you uh, live righteously and you climb this ladder high enough and one day you might earn heaven or one day you might earn God's approval, but you better be careful because you could sure fall off that ladder. You go to a world religions class, every religion or shoot off of Christianity will be placed in this doctrine. You've got to do something to make God love you and you have to continue to do something to sustain that love. We consider that, based upon Scripture, doctrines authored straight from hell. Because there is only one way to salvation and 10,000 ways to hell. And the one way to salvation is not in the doctrine of human achievement. It's in the doctrine of divine accomplishment. Whereas the icon for the doctrine of human achievement would be a ladder that hopefully stretches up to heaven and you start climbing it. The doctrine of divine accomplishment is not a ladder, it's a cross. It's based upon what Jesus did for you and what Jesus did for me when he paid for your sins and my sins on the cross. And the moment we simply trust in what Christ did for us on the cross... We transfer our heart's confidence from the doctrine of human achievement, whether you think you're mile high, or the doctrine of human achievement, whether you think you're far down in a valley. We transfer our heart's confidence from the ladder to the cross. And at the moment we trust in the cross of Christ, all of our sins are forgiven. He floods us with his spirit. We are his child. We are heaven bound. And we live for God. We worship. We serve God. We pray. We walk in holiness and righteousness. Not because we've earned it, but because of the doctrine of divine accomplishment. And it's our response to his love for us. So if you have your Bibles, open it with me to John chapter 8. And we're going to talk today about the doctrine of divine accomplishment. And our goal is that you would transfer your heart's confidence from yourself, good or bad, from yourself, prideful, or whether you're wallowing in condemnation. Our prayer is that you would transfer your heart's confidence from yourself to Jesus Christ. That you would transfer your heart's confidence from the ladder of human achievement to the cross of divine accomplishment. And the moment you transfer your heart's confidence, the Spirit floods your soul, gives you a new heart, and it causes you to love Him. And the rest of your Christian walk on this earth, until, like Henry, we are glorified and face-to-face with the one with nail-scarred hands and the one who will embrace us one day. But the rest of our time on this earth is about going deeper and deeper in exploration of his mercy and grace and love for us. And I would dare say, 
Whether you're not a Christian and you're just sort of checking things out, or whether you've been a Christian for a long time, if your Bible has been collecting dust, if your prayer life has grown cold, if you begin straying, sort of drifting in your relationship with Christ, perhaps somewhere along the way, you're uh, like a car, the front end can be knocked out of alignment. Something happened in your life that has caused you to begin focusing on the doctrine of human achievement. And consequently, you've been avoiding God because that's ultimately the fruit of the doctrine of human achievement. You might seek God with religious externals, but internally you drift from God because you cower in fear and guilt and condemnation. And so our prayer is that we will transfer our heart's confidence for the first time or transfer our heart's confidence afresh to the doctrine of divine accomplishment through the cross of Christ in the empty tomb. And we'll have a fresh joy and a fresh love and a fresh passion for Christ. So let's begin in John chapter 8. And we'll start with verse 1. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. They went out, each to his own house, but Jesus to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple... All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, now here's where our plot thickens, verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Uh Uh-oh. This is in the Middle East. East. She is caught in the act of adultery. Even today in the Middle East, you'll see on the news that a woman is stoned to death because she was caught in the act of adultery. Even today in parts of the Middle East, you'll see that a woman is stoned to death or a young girl is stoned to death because perhaps she didn't want to marry the person that her family had uh, sought out for her. Or maybe she dressed what people in her culture considered provocatively and they stoned her to death. And this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. So our plot thickens. They brought this woman who had been caught in adultery, placing them in their midst. There's a crowd around Jesus. He's teaching them. This woman is thrown down in front of her. I'm confident they didn't give her a chance to even get her clothes. Her hair is is in a mess. Her makeup is smeared all down her face. She's crying. Her arms are trembling. She's trying to cover herself. She's ashamed. She's humiliated. She's terrified. And they ask Jesus, verse 5, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Look at their motive in verse 6. They didn't care about the Mosaic law. They said this to test him, that they might have a charge to bring against him. Trick question. Jesus' back was against the wall. They put him in a corner. This is a catch-22. No matter how Jesus responds, they are finally going to have reason to accuse him. For example, if Jesus says, you know what? And by the way, in this culture, nobody wants to appear weak on sin. And so, in this culture, if Jesus says, you know what? It does say... In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, the law says to stone her. Do it. Well, he will be exalting himself because he'll look like he's really firm on sin and strong in the law, and they would do it. And as a result, they would go right to the Roman authorities because in this culture, we know when the the religious leaders sought to kill Jesus, 
um, before the Roman authorities, we know culturally, we know historically, we know biblically that under Roman law, and the Jews were under Roman law, they had no authority to implement capital punishment. So if Jesus said, yes, kill her, they would, they would tell the Roman authorities that this troublemaker is inciting a riot, bucking Roman authority, and they would finally have Jesus executed. But if Jesus says, uh, no, 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 let her go, they would. And they would cite Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, which clearly states that if a man or woman are caught in the act of adultery, they will be stoned to death. And Jesus will have broken the, the moral law, the Mosaic law, and encouraged others to do the same. And then they would solicit a riot. They wouldn't go to the Romans, they would go to the people, and they would solicit a riot and have Jesus executed. They finally had him. How would you respond? Jesus, cool, calm, and collect in the midst of this mob, bends down, and he just writes on the ground with his finger. We don't know what he wrote. There's all sorts of speculation about it, but we don't really know. Interestingly, this is the only time in all of Scripture that Jesus is recorded actually writing something. He wrote the 66 books of the Bible through the Holy Spirit through prophets, but he wrote on the sand with his finger, and they're all awaiting his verdict. And at this moment, Jesus has one of three options. He can respond to her with justice. He can respond to her with mercy, or he can respond to her with grace. Now, what would that look like? Well, imagine one morning you go out in your front lawn, and you see your 15-year-old neighbor down the street who just got his license, And he's revving the car of his parents' car, revving the engine of his parents' car. And you think, this isn't good because I know this kid doesn't uh, drive well, and I'm always hearing him scream back and forth with his parents. I, I wonder where he's going with his car. I know he's not supposed to be in there. And so he peels out of his driveway, and then he's going down the street to your house, and he drives over your mailbox, shatters it. He drives over the garden that you've been working on all summer long. And then he even drives into your garage door and busts a hole in it. You are upset. How do you respond? You have one of three options, justice, mercy, or grace. Here's what justice would look like. Justice would be, you don't even give the kid a chance to get out of the car. You go over there, you pull him out of it, and you point to the damage that he did, and you tell him, you're going to pay for every last penny of it. I'm going to tell your parents. In fact, before your parents even get over here, the police are going to be here. You dial 911, and then you... Tell the parents and so forth. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No, it's rational, it's logical, it's an eye for an eye, it's a tooth for a tooth. It's justice, it's just. And this is what justice is. Justice is just what you deserve. There's nothing wrong with telling the kid's parents. There's nothing wrong with having him pay for everything. There's nothing wrong with calling the police to ensure that he pays for everything. It's just, it's rational, it's logical, it's responsible, it's mature, it's going to help that kid grow. It's what he needs. It's justice. Would you choose justice? Now, what would mercy look like? Well, here's mercy. Whereas justice is getting exactly what you deserve, mercy is not getting the justice that you deserve. You see the difference? 
Justice is getting exactly what you deserve. Mercy is not getting the justice that you deserve. So here's how justice would play out. Okay, you compose yourself, you calm yourself. You count to 30, all right? You let the kid get out of the car. You go over to him and you say, I'm not gonna call the police. And so long as you pay for it, I'm not even gonna call your parents, but you know, make it right, all right? That's merciful. Now, merciful is controversial because some people would say, you should have called the police. The kid's never going to learn anything. You're enabling the kid. But, you know, at least he's paying for it. You know, it's holding back on the justice. And if you give the kid mercy, he's going to be very grateful. And the idea is that he will be motivated to work hard to deserve it. There's a third option. And that third option is called grace. And just so you know, this third option, this third option is scandalous. This third option is going to appear irresponsible. If you implement this third option and then go to work and tell your coworkers how you responded, they're going to start buzzing about it. And it's just going to be scandalous. And they're going to talk about it. And they're going to talk about how irresponsible you were and how crazy this was and how out of your mind this is. Here's the third option. It's grace. Now, justice is giving the kid what he deserves. Mercy is not giving the kid what he deserves. Grace is lavishing goodness and kindness and blessings upon the kid that he does not deserve. You see the difference? Justice is giving them what they deserve. Mercy is not giving them what they deserve. Grace is giving them the goodness and the blessings that they don't deserve. So here's how this option could play out. You let the kid get out of the car, and you say, listen, I hear you yelling with your parents. I don't know what's going on. And I don't know what your home life looks like. And I don't know what happened to you when you were younger. I don't know how many friends you have in school. I don't know if you love going to school because you're so popular. Or I don't know, you might hate going to school because you don't feel like you have any friends there. Or you don't belong. Or you might struggle with your grades. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I want to know. And if you would like a friend, I want to be that friend to you. See this stuff? See that mailbox? See, see, see my yard? See, see the garage door? That's just stuff. That can be replaced. Your life can't. And the decisions you make now matter. And in fact, you see in the garage? You see that 65 Mustang? That's yours. I'll sign the title over to you. I'm going to help you get your license lined out. I'm going to teach you how to drive it. It's yours. I just want you to come by and meet with me once a week. And we're going to have a Coke together. And I just want to hear about your life. And I want to be a blessing in your life. That option is scandalous. But in implementing the third option, there is the longing that as the kid rolls the events of the day through his mind, there's going to be an explosion of mystery in his heart as he tries to figure out why you loved him. There's going to be an explosion of mystery in his heart that will, will produce gratitude. 
that will open his heart up to trusting you and talking to you and being discipled by you. And there's a possibility that by implementing this scandalous option, grace, that it's going to change the whole trajectory of his life. Justice, mercy, and grace. These are the three options that Jesus had to choose from this day. So what would justice look like? And I believe justice is usually the easiest route to go. Justice would be, Jesus said, you're right, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Leviticus 20.10, execute her. And according to the holy law, the Mosaic law, she got exactly what she deserved. What would mercy look like? Mercy said, come on. Jesus would say, come on. Come on, we've all, we've all stumbled, right? So let's not, let's not give her the full extent. Let's not involve Rome. Let's just beat her up so badly that she doesn't forget it, and she doesn't think about doing this again. That's merciful. And that woman would have been grateful for mercy. But Jesus chooses grace. Let's continue to read. He was riding in the finger, he was riding in the sand with his finger. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and rode on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up again. He could have said something like, how could you have gotten yourself in this situation? How could you have been so foolish? You have kids at home. What about your husband? What about the guy's wife? He didn't do that. He said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And I believe at this point, he picks her face up and he makes eye contact with her. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Do you notice the order? Jesus did not say, go and sin no more and then I will not condemn you. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. You see, this is the doctrine of divine accomplishment. We don't earn his forgiveness, and the gift of righteousness. We receive it, and as a result, the Holy Spirit changes our heart and enables us to live for Him, to live a life that counts, to live a life that honors Christ, to live a life that inspires hope, to live a life that invites all the blessings of God upon our lives, to live a life that ignites our heart with abundant life. So before we go further... Let me just illustrate where we're at so far. The three options that we had. This is what justice would look like. So this glass represents your life. And the water represents the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the righteousness of God. And we all start out with a full glass. This is the doctrine of justice. 
And as long as you uphold the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and all the variations from the Ten Commandments perfectly, well, then you will get to heaven and you will present to God a full glass. But the problem with that is that the Bible says nobody's done that, not even one person. There is none righteous. No, not one, Scripture say. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, you've sinned, and I've sinned. The Bible tells us that man's righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God's holiness. And those filthy rags, some scholars, I'll give you the more tame, the more mild interpretation, those filthy rags represent rags that lepers use to cover their sores and it absorbs the pus. Man's best, man's righteous is like filthy rags compared to God's holiness. So I started taking a Spanish class at UTA. I'm doing pretty good. The first class I made in 87, or the first test I made in 87, the second test I made in 98. Now since I fell out of Spanish in high school, I'm very proud of that, right? My goal is to speak the language fluently. Now, I do have a 76 average because I'm 20 years removed from high school, and they have this thing called Blackboard now where all your homework is, a lot of your homework is online. So I have two weeks of zero, so my average is a little bit lower. But I just want a good enough grade to be able to take the next class. So after I took my second test and I made a 98, you know, I learned how to conjugate a few verbs, I was feeling pretty proud of my Spanish. And I was thinking, man, I got this thing down. And I was ordering pizza for the youth on Wednesday, and Pizza Hut put me onto the wait, so there's a, there, there's a recording that's going, and it was in Spanish. And I thought, cool, it's in Spanish, I'll just listen in. I didn't understand one single word. <laughs> so you think you're good, and then you get around someone who's really good, and you realize you're nothing. And in the same way, you think that you've lived well, you think that you lived righteously, but then you stand toe-to-toe, and you realize that all of your righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God's holiness. And reality is, every one of us have stumbled. Ah, uh-oh. And in order to get to heaven, the glass has to be full, and we've stumbled. How many of you have stumbled? You realize that if you just stumble three times a day, say for 42 years, you will stand before God and give an account for some 50,000 sins? And so we stumble again, darn. And we stumble again. Ah. And many of us, all of us, have stumbled many times. None of us have a glass that's filled with righteousness to enter into heaven. And there is only one righteousness. There is only one righteousness that will ever access heaven. And that righteousness is not Mother Teresa's. It is not Billy Graham's. It is not our sweet great-great-grandmother. There is only one righteousness that can access heaven, and that is the righteousness of Christ. All other righteousness is filthy rags compared to God's holiness. Justice is hopeless for all of us. Well, there's another option, and this option is called mercy. And mercy is, okay, God God gives you about, you know, halfway, uh, 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 he fills your cup about halfway, and he says, from there, climb hard. But as we've already stated, nobody can climb high enough to access heaven one day. 
And that puts us all in a pretty hopeless situation, doesn't it? All right, thank you all for coming out. And you're dismissed. I'm kidding. Wouldn't that be horrible news if the gospel ends there? But what makes the good news, and the gospel means good news, and what makes the good news so good is that it's backdropped, that it's, it's set against the backdrop of really bad news. And the really bad news is there's none righteous, no, not one. The bad news is, is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news is that God is not interested in the doctrine of human achievement. God is interested in the doctrine of divine accomplishment. And he wants to give us grace. And this is what grace looks like. All of the forgiveness, all of the righteousness, all of the love of God is poured upon our lives And the Bible says that this love is absolutely lavished upon us so that God gives us enough grace to cover 10,000 of the most sinful lifetimes. The word lavish means grace on top of grace, 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 on top of grace. Niagara Falls would be insufficient to represent the love and the grace that God will pour upon us. So let's go back to our text because we've got a problem with the text. And the problem states that is it's in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, if we could pull that up. The problem is that although we hate to admit it, the Pharisees were right because it really does say in the Mosaic law that she should have been executed. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So how could Jesus, who claimed to be the Son of God, the Word of God, just ignore the Word of God, the law of God, and let her go? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, I haven't come just to disregard the law. I tell you the truth. Not the slightest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, not a dot nor a comma, not a jot nor a tittle, will by any means disappear until everything in the law has been accomplished. I tell you the truth, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So how could Jesus, who claimed to be the Word of God, just ignore the law of God? He wasn't ignoring the law of God. Jesus came to fulfill the law of God of God. In other words, Jesus set her free. Jesus let her go. But what about the law? Because Jesus knew he was going to stay back and take the hit on her behalf. How could Jesus just set her free from the consequence of the law that she absolutely deserved? Because Jesus knew that he was going to stay back and pay the price on her behalf. You see, Jesus was her scapegoat. Does that word sound familiar? Scapegoat is when the innocent party takes the blame so the guilty party can go free. You hear it many times. You hear it in politics. You hear it in business. A scapegoat. 
okay, we're going to have to pay for this unless we can find an innocent person to pin it on. So we'll pin the blame on this innocent person and they'll get fined or they'll go to prison and then we're going to stay behind or, and then we'll be able to go free. So Jesus was able to set her free because he was going to stay behind and be her scapegoat. Do you realize that's actually a theological term that finds its origin in Leviticus chapter 16? When all of Israel would gather around the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, and they would have two goats, and they would cast lots, and the first goat, they would, they would slit its throat, they would take its blood, they would take it into the Holy of Holies, they would sprinkle it over the mercy seat. You know, like, how, how gruesome is that? Yeah, that goat was symbolically paying for the sins of the people, and the symbol was Jesus. But then there was a second goat. And the high priest would have his hands covered in the blood of the first goat, and then he would go to the second goat, and he would lay his hands on the the forehead of the second goat around all of the people, and then when he would remove his hands, there was a circle of blood around its head, and they would drive that goat out of the camp to wander in the wilderness by itself. That was the scapegoat. And both of those goats were a picture of Jesus Christ, the ultimate scapegoat in our life. And when he was on the cross, he paid for our sins so that we would not have to pay for our own sins. And in so doing, he took our guilt, our shame, our condemnation upon himself, and he took it far away, so far that the Bible says God has separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Notice that the Bible doesn't say God separated our sins as far as the north is from the south. Because if you go north, you'll eventually go south. You go south, you'll eventually go north. North and south meet. So that's not a very far distance. But if you go east, you're always going east. If you go west, you're always going west. It's an eternal distance apart. When Jesus, the ultimate scapegoat, paid for our sins on the cross, he separated the penalty of our sins, the condemnation of our sins, as far as the east is from the west. That's an eternal distance. He puts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness, and he remembers them no more. Let's read about this in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Let's hold it there for a second. The righteousness of God, remember the doctrine of human achievement, it's the doctrine that we can achieve in the law, and we all fall short. The law was never designed to uh, give us a pathway to heaven. The law was only designed to keep God's people in balance so they wouldn't self-destruct until the Messiah was born. And the law was only a tutor to keep God's people in balance. And the law was designed to help us realize that we're sinners who need a Savior. The law was never intended to be a pathway to heaven. The law was only intended to keep God's people from self-destructing until the Messiah was born, who would be the ultimate scapegoat and who would give us boundaries and to help us realize that we're a sinner who need a Savior. It was never designed to be a pathway to heaven. And that's what Jesus is about. Our failure in the law is to drive us to Jesus. Because now, the righteousness of God, and what is righteousness? It's the forgiveness of sins. It's the righteousness of Christ, do you remember? There's only one righteousness that can access heaven, and that's the righteousness of Christ. But now the righteousness of God 
has been manifested apart from the law, apart from the doctrine of human achievement, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith of what about Jesus? Through faith in who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. He's the glorious one. He's sinless. He's holy. And he paid for our sins on the cross. Faith in who Jesus is and faith in what Jesus did. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ. And what does that word faith mean? One missionary in trying to minister to, the, uh, to people in the Western Isles off of Scotland was translating scripture. And when he came to this word faith and belief, and trying to utilize their understanding and language, he inserted, lean your full weight upon. That's what faith is. It's lean your full weight upon. It's lean your full confidence upon. When we place our faith, when we lean our full confidence in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. And that's really hard for us because we want to earn it. We want to deserve it. And God says, it's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. All you can do is receive it by leaning your full weight upon your heart's confidence, your heart's trust in Jesus, the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus on the cross. And through that, we have the redemption. That means the forgiveness. Through Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That word propitiation simply means he bought us back. He paid for us. We were in bondage. We were enslaved to the law of sin and death. Every one of us on our best day are filthy rags and failed miserably in this mosaic system, the doctrine of human achievement. But he bought us back with his own blood so that he could forgive us and cleanse us. And this was to show God's righteousness in our lives. So, we can read about this also in Isaiah chapter 53, and it's an amazing chapter. It's a beautiful chapter, and it's been called the, the gospel in the Old Testament, and it's all about Jesus. And we read about this propitiation, this um, sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Who has believed what he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Speaking of Jesus. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. In other words, he probably wasn't as handsome as Jim Caviezel in The Passion of the Christ. He was just a normal looking guy. There was no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus chose that so that it would be the power of God and the grace of God that caused people to be drawn to him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Watch this, the doctrine of divine accomplishment. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him 
the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth because this is why he came. But like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who was considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man, who we read in the Gospels, lent him his tomb, with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, he was sinless, there was no deceit in his mouth, watch this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. That's us, the church. He shall prolong his days. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness. And he shall bear their iniquities. Which system are you in? The doctrine of human achievement, the doctrine of divine accomplishment. Are you trusting in what you've done or haven't done, therefore oozing with pride or guilt and condemnation? Or have you trusted in what Christ has done for you on the cross and therefore overflowing with peace, joy, the righteousness of God and love in your heart? Would you bow your heads with me, please? How many of you would say, I am trusting in the doctrine of divine accomplishment? Raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. How many of you would say, you know what? I think I've been trusting in the doctrine of human achievement, and this is pretty eye-opening to me. Raise your hand high. I'd like to pray for you. Okay. Anybody else? Raise your hand high. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? I'd like to pray for you. I've been... Thank you. And I've been trusting, thank you. I've been trusting in the doctrine of human achievement. And this is eye-opening. Oh, God loves you so much. He loves you so much, he paid for your sins on the cross. He would rather go through the agony of the cross than to live in the glory of heaven without you. So, what do we have to do to be forgiven? What do we have to do to inherit eternal life? Don't we want to do something? We are born legalists. We want to do it, but we can't. We can simply receive it because it's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. And we receive what Jesus has done when we lean our full weight upon him, when we trust in his work on the cross, and that he conquered death three days later. The Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in calling on the name of the Lord, you're transferring your heart's confidence from yourself to the work of Christ on the cross. And at that moment, the Spirit of Christ floods your heart, cleanses you, clothes you with His righteousness. In a second, in calling on the name of the Lord, you will be cleansed of all unrighteousness, and you will be clothed with the righteousness of God. And you will be a heaven-bound child of God. And the rest of your life will simply be about going deeper and deeper in exploration of this love and grace of God that you can never exhaust. And it is the greatest mystery. You simply love Him and you worship Him in response to it. 
Father, you saw the people who raised their hands that this is eye-opening and they've been trusting in the doctrine of human achievement. We pray that right now your Holy Spirit would open their heart and empower them to call upon you as their Lord and Savior. And so if you've been trusting in the doctrine of human achievement, but you want to trust in what Christ has done for you, this is what we call being born again. It's what we call a decisive moment of salvation. And it changes the trajectory of the rest of your life and the rest of eternity. And we all want to pray with you to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Pray in an audible voice. Pray out loud. And we'll pray with you. God, I know that I have sinned. And I know that I failed in the doctrine of human achievement. But I praise you for the doctrine of divine accomplishment. I believe you paid for my sins on the cross. I believe that you, Jesus, are the Lamb of God who was slain. You were the scapegoat who was slaughtered to pay for my sins so that I could go free. Like the woman caught in adultery, I am a sinner and I am guilty and the Mosaic law says I should be killed. The wages of sin is death. But thank you for paying for my sins. I lean my full confidence in you. I trust in the work of the cross. I trust in the person of Jesus. And I trust in the work of the cross. And I believe you conquered death. Jesus, forgive me. Come into my heart through your Holy Spirit and give me a new heart and a new life as you forgive me and save me and help me to grow in a relationship with you. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? I wonder how many of you would say, I mean, think about what Jesus did. He went to the cross on your behalf. This is bold. He was fearless. You know, you see in paintings, he had a little loincloth. He didn't have a loincloth. I mean, it was humiliating. It was grueling. You see in paintings, there's just a few trickle of blood. No, no, no. The Bible says he was so mutilated, he didn't even look like a human being any longer. He held nothing back in his love for us. And let's hold nothing back in our love for him. You say, well, it seems so easy. No. There was nothing easy about Jesus leaving the glory of heaven to this earth where he was worshipped for all of eternity, where he would be rejected. There was nothing easy about being mutilated with the cat of nine tails. There was nothing easy about carrying that cross when he was at the brink of death. There was nothing easy about he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There was nothing easy about, as Jesus said in Psalm 22, as he became our sin, I am no longer a man. I'm now a worm. There was nothing easy about the Father looking upon the Son, God the Father looking at God the Son, and the sky growing black because God couldn't stand to even look upon His Son, the righteous one who was now the sins of the world. There was nothing easy about His heart being sorrowful among, um, within Him, even to the point of death. There was nothing easy about His creation who should have been worshiping Him, spitting upon Him, and mocking Him. There was nothing easy about the 
one who bore our sins and paid the price and conquered death three days later. There was nothing easy about Jesus accomplishing our, our salvation. Easy for us? Yeah. Nothing easy for him. And what can we possibly add to the work that Jesus accomplished upon the cross? We can add nothing to it. We simply humbly receive it. And then we live a life that says, thank you. And we live a life that says, I love you. And every morning we pray for the boldness to live such a life of love and thankfulness to the one who loved us first. You say, well, how do I know that it really took? How do I know that I'm really saved? Because you're willing to get baptized. That's the first way you know. You don't baptize, you don't get baptized to be saved. We're saved by the grace of God. But we are baptized because we are saved. How do I know that you're married when you walk in? You have a wedding ring. How do we know that it took? Because you're willing to follow Jesus in baptism. Some of like, I don't, I don't want people to see me in wet clothes. I don't, I don't know. It's vulnerable. I don't want people to see me with my hair wet. Whoa, 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 whoa. He didn't even look like a human being. <laughs> he was bold for us. Let's be bold for him. What will people think? I mean, I was baptized when I was a baby. No, no, no. Your parents baptized you when you were a baby. Following Jesus in baptism is something that you do for him. Well, I was kind of in the doctrine of human achievement, and I've already been baptized because that's one of the things I was doing on my checklist to get to heaven. No, no, no. We trust in Christ. Now you're a new creature. You're a new creation. Now you follow Jesus again, and baptism is a display and a testimony of what he did in your life. So how do you know that it took? Well, for one, you start following Jesus, and one of the ways is in baptism. So if you want to follow Jesus in baptism— if you've saved, if you prayed to receive Christ, talk to me about that. You have a connect card, and one of, the, one of the boxes is, I want to be baptized. Check that. Give it to me. Give it to one of our deacons. Put it in the box at the back. Just uh, bring it up here to the altar. So we're going to have an opportunity to follow Jesus in baptism in a couple of weeks. Follow Jesus in baptism. And invite all your friends and family so they can see that you're a new creature. You're a new creation. And with each step of faith that you take, you become more and more filled with the Holy Spirit. And you have greater and greater joy in this life. So let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for calling us your friends. Thank you for this fresh and exciting relationship with you that grows newer and newer. The deeper that we go in the doctrine of divine accomplishment. We repent of trying to appease you under the doctrine of human achievement. And we simply praise you for the cross. We praise you for the empty tomb. We praise you for the gift of righteousness. We praise you that we're new creations. We praise you that we're heaven bound. We praise you for a church family that we can now grow in our relationship with you. We praise you for the word of God that we can dive into every day and it builds our faith. We praise you for the promise that now that we're saved and now that we're in Christ that we can pray and we always have an audience with you and you respond to every one of our prayers with power and authority. We praise you that 
that we have a story to tell. We praise you that we have a testimony that will give hope to the world. We praise you that we have a new purpose in this world, and that is to live for you, to seek you, to know you, and to make you known, and to edify the church family. We praise you. And now, guys, let's just respond with praise. Uh, let's just worship God with our whole heart. And then um, I'll come back up in a moment with a few announcements. If you're uh, somebody who's come up to pray for people in the past, please come up here. And if you would like prayer for anything specifically, come on up here and there's some guys who will pray for you. If you just want to pour your heart out at the altar, do that. Uh, if you just want to worship Christ with your whole heart, do that. But let's respond to the cross.